Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I hope uh, we're uh, broadcasting the uh, the new broadcaster program had to be uh, adapted to the my current sound settings, and so I'm hoping I'm being heard. the uh, The program is telling me that we are streaming. So if we are streaming. That's a good sign. So I'm going to go ahead and play the theme music, and uh, we'll go from there. So give a listen. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I guess we still have some issues with the sound, but at least we're broadcasting, and uh, we're going to uh, talk about the the, uh, the early church fathers. This is going to be part three of the early church fathers, and the the belief uh, contrasting the young earth view with the old earth view, and uh, it's been uh, an article from God and Science. I'll copy it and put it into the chat room real quick. So we'll have to figure out what the problem is. It may be my microphone, but uh, we'll see. Uh, I'll I'll try changing the microphone for Voice of Christian Israel and see if that helps. So in any case, let's, uh, and I may just play some music and switch microphones uh, in the middle of the show this morning. We'll, We'll see. It's probably worth a try. So uh, let's go into this article where the early church fathers, uh, old earth or young earth creationists, and uh, this very even-handed article by, uh, let's get the author's name, Dr. John Millam, coming to grips with the early church fathers' perspective on Genesis and um, the attempts by various authors uh, of both sides to proclaim the early church fathers you know favored a, a 24-hour day or uh, a day age interpretation is he says it's bogus on both sides that uh, they're not uh, telling the full story they're taking quotations out of context which is very much uh, in vogue in modern <laughs> churchianity to take to take uh Quotations out of context and not give the whole story. Uh, for example, antinomianism is a real problem with uh, the uh, interpretation. There's no, there's no such statement in the Bible that says the law has been done away with. This is all a matter of convoluted interpretation. And uh, we, we are definitely in the midst of uh, some of the greatest distortion of Bible you know, Bible scholarship 
Bible verses uh, distorted by in all kinds of different ways to fit the dogma of the particular denominations. And as uh, I've been saying, the the problem is that they refuse to adjust their uh, theology to actual history and actual science. And uh, we'll be quoting from Bertrand Capare a bit later about that subject as well. So, the uh, he says in the Creation Week history conclusion, and uh, the, it's about this guy, Book, who uh, tries to spin the early church fathers into teaching a, tw- a literal 24-hour day creation scenario. Book devotes many pages to documenting the Creation Week pattern for human history, or sex-slash-septa-millinary construct, and its popularity among the Church Fathers. For him, it is the crowning argument for his claims of early young earth creationism. The irony is that while many indeed saw the earth as young, the view was driven primarily by human tradition. It is incorrect, therefore, to conclude that the young earth view in the early church is grounded on a literal interpretation of Genesis. In fact, quite the opposite. As such, the popularity and consistency of young earth creationism in the early church is almost entirely artificial, and so should not be construed as supporting modern young earth creationism. We would be better served by reassessing Genesis 1 verse 11, for, or 1 through 11, sorry, for ourselves, rather than relying on the early church for direction on this issue. And I would agree with that because there was no such thing as science in those days. And the problem is, it's even a bigger problem than, than Bible scholarship because we have two competing worldviews, namely the uh, evolutionist theory and the six-day creationism, literal-day creationism. So the, both of those are wrong. They're both wrong. The, uh, you know, the ice core samples that uh, show that the, the current age of the Earth is 11,500 B.C. The, those ice core samples do, do not go into millions of years. That's all speculation. I, I suspect many thousands and many hundreds of thousands, but the reason why the orthodox scientists speculate in terms of millions of years is because that's what's required for having a positive mutation uh, upgrade a particular species into a higher species. But unfortunately, no such, no such development has ever been shown scientifically. And the, the, f- the fable of evolution does not meet the very standards of the scientific method, which say you have to have at least one experiment show that uh, this can take place, and this experiment has to be reproducible. No such thing has ever happened with evolution. So it's a fable. It's a matter of faith. It's blind faith. And uh, you know, it's ironic that uh, secular people accuse religious people of having blind faith. Well, for the most part, that's true. But... There's blind faith in the sciences as well. Next section here. Was the age of the earth considered vital to Christian orthodoxy in the earth early church? While the days of creation, the age of the earth, and the extent of Noah's flood were subjects of popular speculation in the early church, they were never treated as critical issues, nor were they uh, treated as dogma. First of all, 
Not one of these topics was included in any of the early church creeds. In fact, no prominent church doctrinal statement or confessions of faith discussed any of these controversial issues prior to the 20th century. So, of course, this coincides with the fact that the sciences were emerging in the 1700s and 1800s. And initially, these sciences were done by Bible-believing scientists. So the science of geology in its early days saw no conflict between the, the geological era and the Bible. They saw no conflict, and indeed there is none. Once you take into consideration that you, you have to eliminate Noah's flood, as being global, because one of the problems is of the six-day creationists, the young earth creationists, is that they say all of these sediments, including the fossils, were laid down during the flood. At least some of them claim that. And that's absurd. That's absolutely absurd. Because in order for those fossils to occur, uh, those, those species have to live and die, okay? And it takes many years for these species to live and die, grow uh, grow shells, and have those shells deposited in the mud, okay? And then we have the moraines that are scattered primarily uh, across the northern hemisphere, which are the clear evidence of the end of the last ice age because those glaciers pushed all kinds of debris down to toward the equator and uh, left huge mounds of debris, in some, in some cases boulders, gigantic boulders weighing many tons that couldn't be moved any other way. So uh, this evidence, uh, and that, those weren't covered up with mud, they're still there. Those weren't covered up with sediment, they're still there. So this proves that Noah's flood was not global. It was local. The, the deluge was global, but the, you know, the, the flooding was very much local. And it was especially bad in the area of the Tigris and Euphrates, where you have evidence of uh, freshwater silt washing down from the north. And uh, so it's obvious that that water uh, was uh, of a great volume. I think it was, I forget uh, how many feet deep that this freshwater silt was maybe 15 or 20 feet, that would take an awful lot of water to create that much silt in, in a freshwater scenario. And then you find that there's more uh, remains of uh, villages and stuff underneath all that silt. So above and below this silt, there are human remains and uh, evidence of human uh, uh, occupation. So uh, it's clear that this uh, settlement, these settlements in the Near East, were uh, were flooded by fresh water, not by salt water. Okay, so let's continue. Second, not one of the these three issues was ever listed as part of the rule of faith, Latin regula fidei, which was a statement of key doctrine. Third, most of the discussion about the age of the earth and the flood occurred as secondary points or illustrations rather than primary topics. So any attempt to uh, use the teachings of the early church fathers on one side or the other is usually strained, is what he's saying, and, uh, and his uh, analysis of Mook's work shows exactly that. 
The age question was concerned mainly with apologetics, not a little re literal reading of scripture. To be fair, some important works regarding Genesis have been lost, so my statement only applies to the works that still exist. Fourth, the church was clearly divided on the nature of the creation days, but those rejecting a calendar day interpretation were never condemned as heretical. Okay, and, but this is the attitude of the Judeos today, that uh, you must believe in the literal 24-hour day creation scenario, otherwise you're a heretic, you must be a communist, and that sort of stuff. <laughs> as a matter of contrast, there was only one doctrine related to creation that was considered essential, creation ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing. It was explicitly taught by many individuals and included in key creeds and doctrinal statements as, do as I document here. Creation ex nihilo does not in any way require a recent beginning, only that there was a definite beginning to the matter in the finite past. So the early church fathers clearly required a creationist view, but not specifically a young earth view. Very good. By the way, uh, I don't think the Bible supports the ex nihilo argument, because Paul clearly says that we live and breathe and have our being in him. So we were created out of Yahweh's being, not out of nothing. Did any of the early Jewish or Christian writers teach that the days of creation were long periods of time? or that the earth was older than 10,000 years. To the best of my knowledge, none of the church fathers taught an old earth. Justin Martyr and Irenaeus are sometimes put forward as teaching that the days of creation were a thousand years each, and so holding to a type of day-age view. Further investigation, however, shows that the day as a thousand years formula was only applied to post-creation history, not the days of creation themselves. Other people have claimed to even find proponents of the framework hypothesis and gap theory, which we will go into next, right after we finish this, among the church fathers. But this is not correct and represents poor scholarship. According to my research, yeah, as I said earlier, the early church fathers really had no historical framework or scientific framework uh, they could only with regard to geology and archaeology there, there was no such thing in those days so there's very little they could say about it according to my research the first people to clearly teach that the earth is old were sir isaac newton who was a very much bible believer a total bible believer and thomas burnett in the late 17th century. So on this point, Book seems correct, and Bradshaw agrees. Nevertheless, that is only part of the story. It is incorrect to assume that this absence of an early Old Earth interpretation represents a definite rejection of the position as unbiblical. Well, after all, it would only be opinion on their part, and uh, it would be uh, not based on science. It was or the or the Bible because you have to know the meanings of the Hebrew words, which the author here Milam uh, tells us the the early church fathers had no familiarity with Hebrew at all, so they couldn't do the kind of word studies we're doing today. It was not rejected per se; it was simply never considered for the following reasons: first, the fathers' reliance on Greek and Latin translations of Genesis 
meant they read scripture as far more narrow and precise than the text actually is. Second, the creation week pattern for human history, a popular eschatological tradition, ruled out any possibility of considering a world older than 6,000 years. That is, the prophetic view using the 6,000 years as Yahweh's timeline until the, the Day of Judgment. Taken together, these circumstances show that the early presence of young earth creationism and the absence of an old earth view resulted from faulty understanding and human tradition rather than a solid interpretation of Genesis, and I think that's very well stated. So this is uh, pretty much that, that uh, what's going on. Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, I just want to uh, let everybody know about uh, the show I did on Friday on Yahweh's Covenant People, the Cornwallis prophecy to Washington at Yorktown and uh, Washington's vision at Valley Forge. Uh, I, I urge you to check that out because this is end time stuff par excellence. Par excellence because Cornwallis prophesied that America would be subject to the Jews' religion, <laughs> right? And that's what has happened. America has re has turned to Judeo-Christianity, which is, in fact, Judaism, because there's nothing Jewish about Christianity. But uh, the Jews have convinced the Judeos through bribery, skullduggery, etc., and through ecumenism, which is the subject uh, that uh, Pastor Martins and I have been discussing on The Voice of Christian Israel the last couple of days, the last couple of shows, I should say. And so uh, please check that out, because uh, th this Cornwallis prophecy is extremely significant. So I urge you to, to check that out. So let's continue here. We're almost done with this. There is evidence that at least 12 fathers believed the earth to be less than 6,000 years old in their own day, and so in that limited sense can be considered young earth creationists. The real question, however, is whether or not this meaningfully supports the claims of Book and other modern young, young earth creationists. The answer to that is a strong no for two reasons. The first is that the protistics understanding, that is, the early church fathers' understanding of the age of the earth and the days of creation was driven by a variety of concerns other than scripture, as I described under the previous question. The second is that the modern young earth creationism is a package that contains a lot more than simple claims made by the early church fathers. In other words, simply finding a popular belief in a young world among early Christian writers is insufficient to support modern-day young earth creationist claims. In fact, there's very little to support their claims. To clarify this latter point, it is important to delineate modern young earth creationism from its ancient counterpart. The most important difference is that the modern variety generally elevates the age of the earth and related issues to the level of Christian orthodoxy, yeah, dogma, not merely a private interpretation. Yeah, you must believe this or you're, you're an atheist. Uh, if you don't believe our version, then you're a communist, an atheist, secularist, an antichrist. That's what they say. That is a very marked contrast to the early church. The second distinction is that modern young earth creationism generally teaches that creature mortality began at the fall. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. 
and so was not present in the original creation. So where did all of the, well, I guess I, I explained where all of the fossils came from. They came from Noah's flood, okay? It's an absolutely insane theory. In other words, there was no animal death prior to sin being introduced by Adam and Eve. Well, how does sin apply to animals? That's utterly absurd. Anyway, moreover, this issue is usually treated as an essential doctrine. Scripture, however, is silent on this point. So it is not surprising that the early church fathers wrote almost nothing on pre-fall animal death. They certainly didn't see it as vital doctrine. Plus, Genesis 1 says it was good and very good, not perfect. So, obviously, the old earth creationist view allows for time for the development of fossils. The young earth creationist view does not, and they have to assume that all fossils were deposited during Noah's flood. Wow. While the church fathers wrote little about animal mortality, they were notably divided on the closely related question of whether Adam and Eve were created mortal or immortal prior to the fall. Bradshaw, for example, notes that at least four fathers, namely Theophilus of Antioch, Clement of Alexandria, Theodore of uh, Mopsuestia, and Augustine, taught that the first humans were created mortal. And that is actually what it was. Because Genesis 1 is talking about the creation of species, Genesis 2 shows that Adam and Eve were introduced into the garden from outside of the garden. And then when they were cast out, it says very clearly that they were cast out to that area from whence they came. So the, their immortality, supposed, you know, their, uh, their future or proposed immortality in Genesis chapter 2 was, uh, was not proposed in Genesis 1. So while some components of modern young earth creationism can indeed be traced back to the earliest days of the church, the most criti critical ones cannot. In fact, modern young earth creationism really began in the 20th, 20th century and so is, ironically, newer than old earth creationism, okay, which appeared near the end of the 17th century. As I said, the, the first geologists were also Christians and very familiar with the Bible who did not see any conflict with the geology and the Bible. It's just an assumption made by the new earth creationists that the word yom means a literal 24-hour day. That is the crux of the problem. And they are wrong about that. Conclusion. The early church fathers based their understanding of Genesis on Greek and Latin translations, not the original Hebrew. The allegorical interpreters, Origen and Augustine, did have specific scriptural reasons for rejecting a calendar day view of Genesis 1. In particular, the creation days could not be solar days if the sun was not created until the fourth day. And we talked about this in the first episode. Moreover, the seventh creation day is not closed out by the evening and morning phrase. So it, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> so it is considered longer than a 24-hour day. So here's where the word yom 
is used in, uh, with multiple meanings even in Genesis chapter 1. Even so, the so-called literalist fathers often relied on non-literal modes of interpretation in dealing with the Old Testament, such as typology and numerological association. The cornerstone of Book's proof of young earth creationism in the early church is a widespread belief among the protistrics that human history would last exactly 6,000 years. Ironically, this idea was merely a popular human tradition concerned primarily with eschatology and not creation. This model artificially constrained the age of the earth even though the Bible itself does not require it to be so. But even so, the, the modern Judeos say, well, the whole thing is 8,000 years because there's seven creation days and we're still, they, most of them believe we were still in now what's called the eighth day, uh, which uh, began in, with Genesis 2. So most of them actually believe in an eight-day scenario. Finally, the central issue for the early church was the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, not the days of creation or the age of the earth. Okay, so very good. Uh, this is a well-done article, very even-handed. Again, the title is Coming to Grips with the Early Church Fathers' Perspective on Genesis by Dr. John Millam. Well done. He is actually a proponent of old earth creationism, but he takes a very even-handed view, not trying to distort any scriptures in his favor, <laughs> as, most, uh, as most theologians do. Okay, I hope I'm not guilty of that, because we, we rely on word studies, and we do comparisons of what, what the word Yao means in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and other places, and we find that it, very often it does mean a literal 24-hour day. Sometimes it only means 12 hours, which is exactly what happens in the uh, evening and morning scenario. If you take that literally... The evening and the morning can't be 24-hour days. That's only 12 hours. It covers from sunset to sunrise. It doesn't cover the rest of the day. So Yom can be 12 hours as well, where it very often does. And uh, it could be an entire age, which it means frequently in the Old Testament. So the idea that Yom must mean a literal 24-hour day in Genesis 1 is simply fictitious. It's false. Okay, so, so let's go now to the gap theory, which is uh, the interpretation of how uh, the, the Genesis 1 and 1-2 are to be uh, translated. Okay. Uh, yeah, Swamp Fox uh, comments on Rick Wiles because Rick Wiles really came out against the Jews yesterday uh, and the day before in his video showing that the, all of the uh, primary suspects in trying to impeach Trump were Jews. And I pointed out last night on the Restoration Hour, even the Ukrainians uh, in the uh, corruption scandal were Jews for the most part. So this whole thing is a Jewish attempt to unseat Donald Trump. Because what most of these Jews are, in fact, communist folks. Judaism invented communism. And all of these socialists are communists. They're try they want to take Trump down because they're communists. So uh, I think Rothschild views with amusement what's going on. But even George Soros 
is involved in trying to take Trump down. So you're seeing the the most powerful and richest Jews in America and around the world, especially Ukraine and the EU, want Trump to go. Why? Because he's doing even-handed treatment toward Russia. And what I pointed out in that show was that the real uh, issue is the pipelines, the pipelines from which come from Russia and feed Europe with energy. And a lot of those pipelines, the main one goes through Ukraine, and the Jews who control Ukraine do not want that pipeline messed with. It's their cash cow. So, folks, all right, and then uh, uh, Swamp Fox put in a, uh, a link to Artisan Publishers, uh, Christianity and Earth. Let me just click on that really quick. And Okay, so there's a book on this subject. So thank you. Artisan Publishers is a really great outfit. They, they sell books which are Christian identity. Okay, so uh, if I have time, I'll get into this later. But first, let's go into the gap theory. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, Bertrand Camperet's view of this whole issue. So this is www.kjvbible.org forward slash gap theory. So I'll put the link in the chat room. <laughs> yeah, Bernie Sanders will save us from the Jewish commies. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you have to have a sense of humor about these things, otherwise we're doomed. <laughs> so, let's see if this works. There we go. Gap theory. All right. The Bible, Genesis and Geology. The history of the Genesis gap theory interpretation and its basis in Bible doctrine. And uh, they have a nice little image here, the world that then was. 2 Peter 3, verses 5 through 6, and Genesis 1, verses 9 through 10. But actually, the gap theory comes from Genesis 1 and, and verses uh, 1 through 3. Well, let's, uh, let's read the article. The Bible says, quote, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, Genesis 1, 1. And at Genesis 1, 3, God says, Let there be light, which is followed by the seven days of creation, and the making of the world into which he placed Adam and Eve. But between those two verses, there is the mysterious and enigmatic statement of Genesis 1-2, which says, quote, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now the face of the deep, could also be talking about dark matter, <laughs> right? Uh, that uh, the scientists are proposing now as a result of quantum mechanics. Anyway, this verse should not be dismissively taken as just some throwaway statement of how God began the creation process because it is a serious declaration of factual conditions by the Holy Spirit to call the reader's attention to something that is abnormal and out of place. Those facts are, one, the earth already exists. Two, the planet is void of life. Three, there is great darkness everywhere. 
for water already exists. Why? When was all this created? That mysterious verse is the Holy Spirit's guidance to a key scriptural truth. Specifically, the heaven and earth of the original creation, Genesis 1.1 and Job 38.4, had been destroyed and corrupted as a result of Lucifer's sin of rebellion back in the earth's ancient past. And he refers to Isaiah 14.12-16 and Ezekiel 28.13-17. That first world on the face of the earth was now in complete ruin, and I agree with this entirely. What remained was shrouded in a great physical and spiritual darkness and the power of death. The reason? Sin in deep time, or perhaps in dark matter. The Apostle Peter spoke of this mystery in the New Testament. Quote, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Second Peter 3, verses 5-7. through 7. People assume that the mention of the word water in the above passage makes it a reference to Noah's flood and the antediluvian world of man, but it is not. The phrase willingly ignorant and common sense should tell you otherwise, because, well, anyway, because everybody was aware of the flood. After all, anybody even remotely familiar with the Bible knows about Noah's flood. No, the verse is speaking about something else, and the only other place in the Bible where the earth was covered in waters is Genesis 1-2. The ramifications are obvious. The Bible itself reveals that the heavens and the earth, which are now made during the seven days, was not the first time creation of all things. This is why I refer to it as the recreation. The Word of God is telling the observant reader there was a previous world on the face of this old earth before the present world of, well, he uses the word man. It's obviously the world of Adam and other humanoids. The Lord God created the heavens of the earth and he authored the Bible through the Holy Spirit. The, those are two witnesses to God's truth, Matthew 18:16. One witness is the earth's geology which reveals evidence of death in the fossil record extending back millions and millions of years. I don't agree that it's millions and millions of years. They had to make this up to fit with the fable of evolution. The other witness is the written word of God. There's no evidence that the earth, the universe is millions of years old. And the, uh, the earth geology does not tell us about millions of years. There's not millions of layers of fossils. There's not millions of layers of fossils. There's a finite number of layers of fossils. So the most you can do is go thousands of years, perhaps hundreds of thousands of years. Okay. So the other witness is the written word of God, which, when rightly divided, can tell men why there is death in the fossil record. The Genesis Gap Doctrine, commonly called the Gap Theory, or Ruin, Dash reconstruction interpretation of Genesis is not a modern day interpretation of the Holy Bible. 
It is a theological teaching that was espoused by the early church and even the fundamental Protestant faith in the years before Darwin's theory of evolution was even published, at a time when the geological sciences were still in their infancy. The Genesis Gap Doctrine has always been within the Holy Bible. It was there when Moses penned the book of Genesis. It is not a recent notion. The Genesis Gap Doctrine does not contradict the modern-day geological observations that indicate an Earth that is at least 4.5 billion or however old it is, without knowing known evidence of death in the Earth's fossil record, extending back at least 3 billion years, nor does it contradict the Holy Bible. On the contrary, the doctrine clarifies why these apparent contradictions between the Bible and science exist, why the old world that then was ended, and why God made a new world and modern man, Adam. That's good. He inserted the word Adam. Requires a study into the, well, he probably has a uh, multi-culti view of the definition of that word. Requires a study into the ancient origins of Lucifer and the angels. Yes, there was a previous age. We refer to it as Atlantis. All the evidence for Atlantis and all of the sunken pyramids and sunken roads that lead out into the Atlantic to the continent that used to exist there. Uh, for reference, uh, you can read Otto Buck's book, The Secret of Atlantis. I believe that's available online, which has the geological and archaeological evidence for the sinking of Atlantis. And the moraines are just part of it. So uh, let's continue. So uh, this, uh, he says that this was a, a an understanding of the first geologists that there was no contradiction between the Bible and geology. Okay, it also provides a more perfect understanding and warning against what is yet to come upon the world in the near future, and why. The subjects of the Bible and geology are not mutually exclusive concepts. The earth has an ancient natural history that can be deciphered from the geological record, but it also has an equally important ancient spiritual history and literal you know, Bible history that can only be deciphered from a rightly divided Holy Bible. Knowledge of both and enlightenment through the Holy Spirit brings comprehension of the proper context of the earth's geology within the book of Genesis. And I would add that proper word studies of the meanings of the Hebrew words in Genesis 1 and actually throughout the whole Bible are absolutely necessary for an understand, true understanding of the Bible, such as the word Adam, which means to show blood on the face. So it cannot possibly mean all the races. And the Bible does not teach that all the races were uh, developed from Adam and Eve. It, it clearly details a seed line from Seth down to the patriarchs and modern Israel today, which is not the Jews, that's us, the Caucasian Israelites. The Bible time gaps. The Holy Spirit reveals there is a time gap between the first two verses of the Old Testament. This is not the only time gap in the Old Testament. There are two others. There is the gap in the Old Testament between the first and second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is commonly called the Church Age or the Age of Grace. The other is the 1,000-year millennial reign of the King of Kings, the Lord of Jesus Christ, 
which will be here on the earth after his second coming and before the final great judgment. Of course, we disagree with this. It, it, it happened. It was the thousand years between uh, the, the coronation of Charlemagne in 800 AD and the release of the Jews from the ghettos in 1800 AD, that's the thousand years that uh, that's spoken of there. There's a commonly uh, mis misinterpretation of uh, Revelation 19:20, uh, which they, they think that after the beast and the false prophet are totally destroyed, that somehow they will make a comeback. No, when all of the evidence of Scripture, Old and New Testament, when Jesus comes the second time, he will kick ass and get rid. There will be no more evil. Not for us, anyway. The, the, we, uh, the, the Israelites who attain or achieve glory bodies, will not have to deal with sin anymore. That doesn't mean that the rest of the universe uh, won't continue in its old fashion. The, uh, the, the species will continue to exist. Only the Israelites have the opportunity to achieve these glory bodies. In any case, uh, this is a common uh, error which even this author is uh, relating. The late Clarence Larkin referred to these Old Testament gaps as valleys between the peaks of prophecy. The illustration below is schematic of this line of reasoning. Well, yeah, it's very, uh, he shows a, an Israelite prophet standing on the earth and uh, looking toward the future. So uh, and, uh, I have stated many times that uh, the Genesis 1, in fact, uh, you know, yeah, certainly Genesis 1, must be understood from the perspective of Moses standing on the earth, looking at the sky, and this is how he describes it. It's not, uh, it's not a view from, from above the earth, it's a view from the earth, seeing the, the cloud cover that obscured the sun. This is how the fact that the first three days of Genesis had no sun, moon, or stars in the sky. Why? Because the catastrophe of Genesis 1 and 1-2 left a, a blanket of cloud cover over the earth, which had required a long time to dissipate. It was still there for the first three yams of Genesis 1. It finally dissipated, and then the sun and the moon and the stars appeared. All three of these scriptural Old Testament gaps or valleys have one thing in common. These are things that are spiritually discerned. To, well, no, it doesn't require spiritual discernment. We do the word studies. We find out what the Old Testament is really saying as opposed to the dogma given to us by the Judeo churches. These are things, uh, and you know, some of us may have some spiritual discernment about these things. However, you know, we, uh, you, you don't, we don't go around saying, God told me this or God told me that. No, we have to prove it in any case. Spelled out plainly in the New Testament, which sheds light on what is written in the Old Testament. Now, the prophets had spiritual discernment. Peter had spiritual discernment. Paul had spiritual discernment. But very few of these so-called modern prophets have any such thing. The Holy Spirit reveals these things through the knowledge of the Jesus Christ. Well, once we understand who he is and why. So all these statements this guy is making that, you know, through spiritual, he's, uh, 
He's making an argument that we need to have some spiritual vision to interpret the Old Testament. No. All we need is knowledge of the scriptures, real knowledge, not the, uh, you know, he's actually arguing for something that I disagree with. The spirit of prophecy certainly looks forward into the future, and you can only uh, d- determine prophecy, its, its fulfillment, not by spiritual knowledge, but by checking the history and see what fits the prophecy. That's the only way you can uh, determine it. But it also can look backward into the past, and you will be able to see this in the KJV. Keep in mind that what transpired in the past directly sets the course for what will happen in the future. Obviously, you have to know your history to be able to interpret what might happen. If you don't know anything about history, you cannot possibly interpret the Bible. This is why it is, and this is why you cannot possibly know who the bloodline of Adam and the patriarchs is. You have to go by the biblical narrative. And that's why, because we are the covenant people, you cannot include the other races into the covenant. The Bible is absolutely clear about this. And it says, this is why it is essential to understand why there is a gap between the first two verses of the Bible. So anyway, this guy is throwing in a lot of his uh, uh, you know, biblical interpretation in addition to a discussion of the gap theory. Hopefully he'll get back to the gap theory here. Peter's New Test- Testament statement, 2 Peter 3, 5-7, tells us something that is not directly revealed in the Old Testament at Genesis 1-2. But before we amplify the matter further, you need to see why Peter is not speaking about Noah's flood. Quote, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now, we know that the flood of Noah was not global, so that uh, only certain portions of the world were fully covered with water, and uh, the, the Americas were not, Australia was not. Otherwise, those, those animals down there would have per- perished. There would have to be another creation because certainly Noah didn't float the ark down to Australia and give life to platypuses and aardvarks and kangaroos. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. By the way, remember that the ark was merely a flotation device. It had no navigating capacity whatsoever. It was simply intended to float on the water until the waters receded. Compare the phrases, quote, the heavens and the earth which are now, to the phrase, the heavens were of old, in that verse. Ask yourself this question. When Noah's flood happened, did it change anything in the upper heavens? That is, would a flood on the earth's surface have any effect on the sun, moon, or stars high above? The answer is no. So, uh, obviously, Genesis 1 is telling us that the, uh, on the fourth day, the sun, moon, and stars appeared. That did not change with Noah's flood. So, I have to agree with this author's statement. And he goes to Genesis 6. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. 
for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. I think with the earth means along with the earth. The heavens of Noah's days were the same heavens as in Adam's day. Same sun, same moon, same stars. Noah's flood had no effect on the upper heavens. All of the Noah's flood's effects were confined to the earth's surface and its atmosphere. If the effects of Noah's flood were confined to the earth's surface and atmosphere, then Noah's flood did not affect or alter anything in the upper heavens. So logic and common sense demand that this verse must be speaking about an event other than Noah's flood. And Genesis 1-2 is our only other biblical narrative. Notice also in that passage that the earth is said to be standing out of the water, and in the water. In our English language, this descriptive term suggests that these particular waters were not confined to the surface of the planet. The passage describes a deluge that raged across the solar system and beyond with Earth caught up in the destructive overflow. Well, that's possible. Uh, that's reaching beyond the, uh, the scope, I think, of Genesis. Try to draw this mental picture. Think of a dark and ruined universe with water strewn throughout like one big messy galactic spill. Well, I don't know where this water would come from, uh, so uh, I think he's uh, reaching here. That is what Genesis 1-2 is speaking about. Well, it's just telling us that if you stick to the scenario that the earth was had become, he doesn't even discuss the language of Genesis 1-2, although Comparé does. The proper translation is the earth had become, had become, null and void, not was. And of course, the earth had to be replenished. Those two statements clearly indicate that there was a, a, a world order before then, which was destroyed, had become null and void, and had to be replenished. That statement right there shows you that there was a previous age before Genesis 1-2, or before the cre creation scenario of Genesis 1. So, uh, he may be right about the, a lot of water coming from space, but uh, the Genesis scenario doesn't suggest that. Certainly, there must have been lots and lots of stars in the heavens that were of old, just as there are today. And if something had caused the entire cosmos to have gone dark, well, the Bible doesn't talk about, you know, the entire cosmos. It's only talking about a, a person standing on the Earth's surface. So he's, he's going off kilter here with uh, these speculations. Uh, the, the Bible in Genesis 1 is not talking about the entire cosmos. It's being written from the perspective of Moses standing on the Earth, looking up and seeing nothing but clouds. And these clouds are very thick and cause the, the Earth to be very dark for the first, first three days of Genesis, the first three yams of Genesis. So he's projecting this darkness on the entire universe, which uh, the Bible doesn't talk about the entire universe. It's talking about Earth. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. What this is saying is that there was a, a, a whole... Uh, level of atmospheric water above the planet and when this water collapsed that caused Noah's flood that was the water from which the deluge of Noah's flood came from 
that collapsed, and that is no longer there. There was no rain on the planet Earth before this collapse. That's what this is talking about. And so now he gets into verses 2 through 5. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, not perfect. doesn't say there was no death. And God divided the light from darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. So if you count the hours from evening to morning, that's only 12 hours. This light was not physical light as in sunshine because God did not make the sun, moon, and stars of this present world until the fourth day. No, he's got this wrong. They were, uh, they were up there. They just weren't visible from the earth because of the cloud cover. Okay, so at this point, let's go to Bertrand Comperet because this guy has a lot of uh, assumptions, wrong assumptions in his article here. And Bertrand Comparey does a way better job of explaining what was going on. Yes, Swamp Fox, the earth was like a greenhouse. And uh, that's why the patriarchs had such long lifespans. Because if you have this greenhouse effect, and especially with the purity of the water and finally the, the atmosphere cleared up, you would have... Uh, beautiful sunshine, you would have all kinds of vegetation, the earth would have been a lush paradise. And in fact, the evidence shows that even the Sahara Desert was once a lush paradise. There's all kinds of fossil remains of plants and animals showing that even the Sahara Desert once was home to a lush paradise. The whole planet was a lush paradise thanks to the greenhouse effect. It was humid. The Bible tells us that the earth was watered by a mist, not by rain. Okay, that all changed with the Noah's flood scenario. So let's continue. Adam was not the first man. So let me uh, copy and paste this into the chat room here by Bertrand Comparey. You'll find many versions of this online. This is from the uh, website, uh, what is it, uh, Israel Elect, israelelect.com. Uh, I know the person who runs this. He actually lives in a suburb of Chicago. Adam was not the first man by Bertrand Comparey. Many people have become agnostics because of the supposed conflict between the Bible and science. In truth, there is no conflict at all between a correct translation of the Bible and really proven science, not just unproven theories, such as the fable of evolution. One of these supposed conflicts is between the fact science and those human beings have lived on the earth far longer than the few thousand years covered by the Bible, and the common belief that the Bible records Adam as the first man. Yes, I know most of the preachers say that, but the Bible doesn't. It merely says Adam was the first white man. Oh boy, this is identity, folks. Let me repeat this. Yes, I know most of the preachers say that, but the Bible doesn't. It merely says that Adam was the first white man. Let's take a look at the record. 
The many mistranslations of the King James Bible obscure much of the truth. For example, Genesis 1, 1 1-2. In the beginning, Yahweh created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. In the Hebrew, it says, quote, Now the earth had become chaotic and empty. Let me repeat. Now the earth had become chaotic and empty. That is the proper grammar of the Hebrew in that verse. See Rotherham's emphasized Bible. Some early catastrophe had wrecked the earth, which was not without form and void before that. This was a judgment of Yahweh on earlier civilizations for their wickedness. Jeremiah 4, 23-27 gives a vision of it. Quote, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void. So he's, he's referencing Genesis 1-3. through 3. It was without form and void, and the heavens that they ha- had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly, or easily. Uh, I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heaven were fled. I beheld, now of course, uh, when Noah's uh, ark began to settle, he sent out a dove, and the the dove found a a branch of an olive tree. If If the whole earth were flooded for six months, there would be no living trees anywhere. They would all have died for lack of sunlight, photosynthesis, and for being flooded to death. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of Yahweh and by his fierce anger. Now, if you go into the uh, old records of the Mahabharata, they're not; these are not Hindu scriptures, these are Aryan scriptures, which tell us there was a war between the Titans and the fallen ones, the Naga, those who from heaven to earth fell. Okay, the the Mahabharata is all about these wars that took place. And there's ev- even evidence in certain areas of India that show uh, a remnant of radioactivity. What, what caused this radioactivity? They might have had a nuclear war in those days. Obviously, the fallen ones would have great intelligence and probably would have been able to detonate nuclear weapons. Certainly, the weaponry described is is fearful, frightful. So, for thus hath Yahweh said, The whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. Yeah, the planet Earth still exists. Therefore, we do not find buried ruins of cities older than Adam and skeletons, which can be dated by the carbon-14 process as many thousands of years older. The Bible itself tells us about this. So, obviously, what's happening in archaeology today, and geology, proves that the civilizations go back to 10,500 B.C. Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe is one of those, and they're uncovering more and more of these cities that existed before uh, the, you know, the formation of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. 
So we had high, high levels of civilization, which were probably remnants of Atlantis, still existing or uh, coming into being before Adam and Eve or contemporaneously with Adam and Eve. Next, the Bible tells us about the creation of men in the plural in Genesis 1, 26, saying, quote, Male and female he created them, and Yahweh told these people, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. There is the word replenish. Plenish is an obsolete English word meaning to fill. You cannot replenish that was never plenished or filled before. In Genesis chapter 2, we find that Adam in the singular created, or it's a different Hebrew verb there. The Hebrew word adam rendered Adam in English is from the root word meaning to show blood in the face or of a ruddy complexion, a word obviously not applicable to the dark races, which we from scientific evidence to be much older than the white race. Absolutely. The uh, African race has been shown to originate in Africa and were it not for the fact that white people brought them into our world, the uh, you know, the missionaries and the uh, the people doing uh, st- studying other countries and other other areas of the planet, they brought these blacks into our country, and no, no white man ever saw a black man until this happened. Maybe some of the Hamites saw blacks because they settled in northern Africa, but certainly there were no black uh, ruling dynasties until much later in Egyptian history. That's after the uh, white civilizations collapsed in Egypt. Okay, so Bible scholars know Genesis 3.20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, is a later interpolation which was not in the earlier manuscripts, see Moffat's translation. That's interesting, uh, because uh, that uh, obviously Eve can't be the mother of all living, of all life, uh, certainly not the mother of all platypuses. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> that, that's a problem. So uh, Camperea is saying that that verse is indeed uh, an interpolation. Uh, somebody e- either it generalized it, because Eve was the, the mother of two, the bloodline of Seth and the bloodline of Cain. Unfortunately, that is the fact. Genesis chapter towards the birth of Cain and Abel. In the Hebrew, the wording suggests that they were twins. No other child of Eve is mentioned until the birth of Seth, when Adam was 130 years old. Certainly, this was long after the birth of Cain and Abel. Most scholars say this was over 100 years later. Yet, when Cain killed Abel, and in punishment was driven out of the land, he complained to Yahweh in Genesis 4.14, Anyone that findeth me shall slay me. Upon being sent away, Cain found many other people, for Genesis 4.17 records Cain not only married a wife, but also built a city. You don't build a city for just two people. These were the pre-Adamic races mentioned in the latter part of Genesis chapter 2. They're also mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, the beast of the earth, because that expression, the beast of the earth, includes all non-Adamites previous to the creation of the Adam 
in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And we find this expression, beast of the earth and beast of the field, often are references to bipeds. And uh, we have uh, the uh, work of Jason Blaha entitled A Beast with a Hand, which you can find online also, explaining all the verses that show that the beast of the earth and beast of the field are bipeds. Bipeds who have uh, hands and feet, uh, vocal cords, and can worship God. To the limited extent to which they can worship God, they do. Next, the Bible tells us about the creation of men in the plural in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, saying, Male and female created them, and Yahweh told these people, Be fruitful and, and replenish the earth. Now, of course, male and female, he created them, is, is a reference to the species, the Adamic species, which shows blood in the face. So, and Adam called his wife Eve because she is the mother of all living. And he says this is an interpolation. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, I knew I always knew there was a problem with this because Eve is obviously not the mother of all living species. She's only the mo mother of two bloodlines. Okay. So, so the Garden of Eden was not a plantation of ordinary trees and shrubs. Yahweh did nothing so foolish as to make a special creation just to have a man to wield a shovel and pruning shears when he already had millions of pre-Adamites available for this type of work. We are told that the Garden of Eden contained the tree of the knowledge or experience of good and evil. No tree of the forest has any such knowledge or experience of either good or evil. Ezekiel chapter 31 says, Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches and a shadowing bough and of a high stature. Therefore, his height was exalted above all the trees of the field, and his boughs were multiplied, and his branches became long. All the fowls of heaven made their nests in his boughs, and under his branches did all the beasts of the field bring forth their young, which includes uh, hominids. Under his shadow dwelt all great nations because the uh, Assyrians were slave drivers. They were slave masters. And they enslaved many, many, many people. And it's possible they enslaved blacks. So the, the cedars, because their, their ships, were, well, they invaded Egypt and they could have brought back some blacks for slave labor. The cedars in the garden of Yahweh could not hide him. The fir trees were not like his boughs, and the chestnut trees were not like his branches, nor any tree in the garden of Yahweh was like unto him in his beauty. I have made him fair by the multitude of his branches. And fair means white. The Assyrians were white. They were Shemites. So that all the trees of Eden were in the garden of Yahweh envied him. All right, so it's obvious that this tree language of Scripture refers to people as well as to literal trees. In fact, the the so-called figurative use of the word tree as people is just as common as the literal use of the word tree for for you know objects with trunks, leaves, and branches. 
Obviously, the trees in the Garden of Yahweh in Eden were family trees of races and nations who admired and envied the early Assyrian Empire. These made up the garden that Adam was to cultivate. Satan had been what we might call the superintendent of this planet to rule it in obedience to Yahweh's will until he forfeited this position by rebellion against Yahweh. Adam was sent to take his place. It was Adam's job to rule the various nations and races of the earth as Yahweh's representative here, educated. That's why Yahweh breathed his spirit only into Adam and Eve and not to any of the other races. And the, the, the pre-whites, the, what I refer to as the Cro-Magnon uh, whites who were created in Genesis 1, did not receive this spirit. They were under Adam's authority also, or were to have been, until Adam and Eve fell. So, those other races and nations had been here long before Adam. Therefore, the Bible makes it unmistakably clear we are not all descended from Adam and Eve. <laughs> and, uh, and the science of genetics agrees with that statement. For there were other races on earth already old, already numerous, when Adam was created. Among these other races, there are several who are simply pre-Adamic, and one at least which is satanic. Very good. Yeah, we know which bloodline that is. Uh, Adam, the, the blusher. Very good. That's the, that's the correct meaning of the word Adam. Spoiler. Uh, it's interesting that Cain was not only put to death for the murder of his brother, but was also granted some protection from Yahweh. Well, I think that's because our race had to gain experience with these these fallen ones to eventually overcome them. We had to learn by hard <laughs> hard knocks to live by Yahweh's laws as opposed to you know, Satan's lies. And so uh, this is, but this had to happen for the ful fulfillment of the prophecy of Genesis 3:14 and 15, namely the enmity prophecy that there would be enmity between the children of Nachash and the children of Eve, namely the bloodline of Cain and the bloodline of Seth. Of course, the mainstream Judeos are, are very deficient in interpreting the early chapters of Genesis. So let's continue here. The, uh, so we're talking about a satanic seed line coming out of Genesis. There's no doubt about it, folks. And, and the Bible traces that satanic seed line from Genesis 4 through to uh, Genesis 15, 18, where the Kenites, namely the descendants of Cain, are mentioned with the Canaanites and other, the Perizzites, the Hivites, etc., ten nations which were reduced to seven by the time the Israelites got into that land to take it over. Unfortunately, the Israelites did not exterminate them as Yahweh instructed them. They allowed too many of them to live. And uh, Yahweh said in Numbers 33:55, because you have not followed my instructions, they will become pricks in your eyes and thorns in your side until I come again and judge them, judge the world. Okay. 
So, and they indeed have become pricks in our eyes and thorns in our sides. Anybody who has any knowledge of the seed line message and anybody who has any knowledge of the Jews understands that the Jews have been pricks in our eyes and thorns in our side since the, uh, since the fall of Adam and Eve. No, no doubt about this. So he says, obviously, these trees uh, are metaphorical references to races and, uh, and nations and cultures. Okay. Therefore, the Bible makes it unmistakably clear that we are not all descended from Adam and Eve, for there were other races on earth already old, already numerous, when Adam was created. Among these other races, there are several who are simply pre-Adamic, and one at least which is satanic. If you will read the third chapter of Genesis, you will notice that immediately after the fall of Adam, when Yahweh required them to answer what they had done, Yahweh condemned Satan. The word mistranslated serpent is the Hebrew word nachash, which literally means enchanter or magician. While there are times in the scripture where Nachash is translated literally as serpent, but there are just as many where it isn't, where it means enchanter or magician. So again, uh, the Judeo-Christians have dropped the ball and demanded that we take their, their preferred definition and run with it, when you have to look at the metaphorical usage of these words as well. Because Hebrew is a very metaphorical and idiomatic language, and you cannot ignore the idioms, such as beast of the earth and beast of the field, which often are references to bipeds. No doubt Satan, still possessing angelic powers, was able to be an enchanter or magician. It is certain the one who seduced Eve was no mere scaly snake wriggling along on the ground. Now. A lot of people, uh, secular people, laugh at Christianity. I don't know why they don't laugh at Judaism, because Judaism teaches the same thing, that uh, there, this was a literal snake. Actually, there's a lot of rabbis who agree with us that uh, Eve was sexually seduced by some biped being. And they also teach that Adam had sex with Lilith, although the Bible doesn't mention anything about Lilith. But certainly, the, there are plenty of rabbis who admit that Adam, uh, that Eve was seduced by some creature other than Adam. But they never call they never call out the Jews for what they teach. They only call out Christians, and they, they mock Christianity and don't mock Judaism. Maybe the reason for that is because they they just don't take Judaism seriously at all. But they uh, certainly call out Christians for what they believe, and indeed, this teaching that the earth was created in six days, literal days, and that that, uh, that Adam and Eve spawned all of the races is too much for them to believe, and that's because it, it is too much. The Bible doesn't say that, and so it's very unfortunate that the Judeo-Christians have got a monopoly on biblical interpretation, and they're the ones driving uh, many of these people away from the Bible because their their interpretations are so poor and they lack a scientific thrust, which we in, in Christian identity 
certainly believe there's no conflict between science and true religion, true Bible scholarship. Well, let's continue. It is certain the one who seduced Eve was no mere scaly snake wriggling along on the ground. As I like to put it, little Miss Muffet sat on her tuffet, and if a spider was enough to get her to shriek and run away, a snake would certainly do have twice that effect. Yes, I said seduced Eve, for this is what she admitted in the original Hebrew. Cain was the son of this seduction. The Bible uses the word begat with monotonous regularity. But the first time the Bible ever says Adam ever begat anyone in Genesis 5.3, where it says, And Adam lived in 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness, underline the words in his own likeness, after his image, underline that phrase too, and called his name Seth. So the first record of Adam begetting a son, obviously he begat Abel, but Abel was murdered by Cain. So the first begetting of the genealogy was right here in Genesis 5.3. It does not say he begat Cain. To get back to Genesis 3.15, Yahweh said to Satan, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed, that is your posterity, and her posterity. The same Hebrew word for seed is used in both cases. Satan was to have just as literal a seed or descendants as Eve. Yahweh's own word being pledged to this, we must expect and we do. Yahshua tells of this. In fact, the whole Bible is dedicated to delineating and explaining the conflict between these two bloodlines. That's what the Bible is really about. From the very beginning to the very end, that's what the Bible is about. Documenting the conflict between these two bloodlines. All of history is nothing but the conflict between these two bloodlines. In Matthew 13, verses 38 through 39, explaining the parable of the tares among the wheat, Yahshua says, quote, The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. John 6, 7, 70 to 71, Yahshua had been talking with his twelve disciples, and we read, Yahshua answered them, Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now maybe uh, Judas was a half-breed, because Iscariot is a, a little town on the border between Judah and Edom. For he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. You should carefully read John chapter 8 where Yahshua told those who hated him, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father will ye do. He was not being vulgarly abusive in either of these cases, for he never resorted to name-calling. So, well, he did use the word viper <laughs> with regard to the Pharisees repeatedly. He called them vipers many times. So his statement was precisely accurate. 
He did call some of them serpents, children of vipers, which was accurate. Long before this, they had adopted the serpent as a symbol of Satan. This is why their tradition had given the word nakosh, the translation serpent, when it really means enchanter. Yahshua, therefore, was telling them that they were of their father the devil, or serpent, if they preferred that word. In this, he was simply stating a biological fact with scientific precision and identifying the persons of this ancestry. Yes, and if you read the account in John chapter 8, where you know, we are told, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The Pharisees responded, How shall we be free? We were never in bondage to any man. <laughs> this is proof. There, he tricked them into admitting that they were not Israelites because all Israel had been in bondage at some point in the past. It's the Pharisees who made this a, a debate about genealogy, about ancestry. We were never in bondage to any man, they say. They're the ones who bring up the subject of ancestry. And then they say, we be not born of fornication which is, of course, a lie. They are the children of fornication, and they're the people who promote fornication that is race-mixing throughout the world even today. But, of course, they lied about that because you know, they didn't want, you know, here's the Son of God telling you know, everybody within earshot, you Pharisees are the children of the devil. They believe Lucifer slash Satan. That's what he is literally saying there, folks. But of course, the Judeos make short shrift of this, and the Jews don't want to hear it. That's why they want the New Testament thrown out. In fact, there's a county in California which is trying to outlaw the Bible. This is how much influence the Jews have had in our society. So, so he spake of Judas Iscariot, or man of Kerioth. So this is why you have to do the word studies and not take at face value the Judeo interpretation of these verses. You have to look at the deeper meaning, which is not a matter of a, a private interpretation. This is doing the word studies and figuring out how these words are used throughout the Bible. And you have to justify the, your interpretation by how the words are used throughout the Bible and not in one particular verse. And that's what we do. For example, the word rib. The word rib is translated from the Hebrew tzila, which in every other verse in Scripture means side. It does not mean side. So the proper translation is Eve was taken from Adam's side, not from a single rib. So, yeah, and, and the ribs are where the DNA, where the blood and the bone marrow, and oh, what's the uh, uh, very important uh, uh, cells? The stem cells are formed. The stem cells determine the shape of the body, the shape of the organs, and the uh, you know the placement of the organs in the body, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the stem cells are very critical, and so Yahweh formed out of Eve. A, a help meet or a perfect mate, a perfect match for Adam.
Now, he could have done this by simply using the DNA from his bone marrow and uh, adjusting a, pre, uh, a pre-selected Eve from the Adamites in Genesis 1, or he could have, uh, he could have formed her uh, from the dust of the earth. Uh, he has the power to do these things. So whichever way he did it, Eve's sexual female match for Adam. She was not taken from the other races, period. She was not. And neither did have they produced offspring of other races. That's just absolute nonsense taught by the Judeos and by the Jews. So, he was simply stating a biological fact with scientific precision and identities of this ancestry. The same is true of Matthew chapter 23, verses 33 through 37, where he says that you Pharisees, you are guilty of all the, the murders of all the patriarchs from Cain down to Zacharias. So obviously, the Pharisees standing before him could not have killed Abel because Abel existed 4,000 years previous. He's talking about their bloodline. You, you bloodline of Nachash. Your bloodline killed Abel. Your bloodline killed many patriarchs of old. Your bloodline killed Zacharias even in my days. Once you understand the two seed line doctrine, it becomes blatantly obvious that these passages cannot be figurative. Be otherwise, Yahshua would be a liar. Because he's he would be accusing those particular rabbis standing before him of murdering Abel, which they weren't able to do because they weren't present. He's obviously speaking about their bloodline. Coming from Genesis 3.15. Okay, so whenever somebody tells you the Bible is in conflict with what modern science has proven true, you don't believe it. The things that many preachers teach are in conflict with science, as we all know, but these preachers are equally in conflict with the Bible. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. Thank you for this commentary, Bertrand Comparé. Folks, I'll see you at uh, Voice of Christian Israel later on this morning. Take care, and Yahweh bless.